Gangary the Podcast is made possible by the Ashland University Journalism and Digital Media Department. As Ohio's only converged media program, Ashland JDM is training tomorrow's journalists and media creators for media careers in the 21st century. For more information, visit Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department online at ashland.edu slash JDM. Or head to the JDM blog at ashlandmedia.blogspot.com. This is Matt Tullis. This week on Gangry the Podcast, I talk with Janet Reitman. Reitman is a contributing editor at Rolling Stone and is the author of Inside Scientology, the story of America's most secretive religion. In July, she wrote the story Jahar's World for Rolling Stone. The story dug deep into the life of Johar Sarnayev, the surviving brother accused of the Boston Marathon bombing. That issue created a huge controversy when the magazine decided to put Sarnayev on the cover. Reitman has written about a wide range of topics, including the Church of Scientology. She was nominated for a National Magazine Award for that story. She's also covered the war in Iraq and written about anonymous hacktivists, among many other things. In addition to Rolling Stone, her work has appeared in GQ, Men's Journal, The New York Times Magazine, The Los Angeles Times Sunday Magazine, ESPN The Magazine, and Salon. We've linked to a number of her stories on our website. That's www.gangrythepodcast.com. We're here with Janet Reitman of Rolling Stone. Janet, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Now, can we talk about Jahar's World, uh, the story that came out in, in the July issue, uh, one of the July issues of Rolling Stone? Um, what what was your goal uh, with that story um, going into – when you went into it? What was the your first overriding goal? What did you want to do? I just wanted to figure out how um, how I, I basically I looked at I looked at the photos like everybody did of this boy um, who who was you know dare I say it kind of adorable I mean he was very sweet and he looked like a sweet innocent uh, handsome normal uh, teenager and. And I was fascinated with how did this, how did he do this? How did he get to this place? And, you know, that, that is basically what I, what I set out to, to find out. And, and, and it was very difficult to find that out, by the way. But, but, um, but that was the goal. Yeah, I think the fact that he was this kind of adorable looking kid um, mm-hmm. was a really compelling reason to put him on the cover, given what he ultimately did. Um, what did you, uh, I, I'm curious about what your reaction was to the controversy that then was spawned by him being on the cover uh, of that issue. Um, okay, well, first of all, just so you understand, we have writers have no say um, on what goes on the cover, uh, nor even what cover lines you mm-hmm. know are on the cover. And I've had big battles, in fact, <laughs> with my editors over um, over cover lines. And I mean, you know, I have. Writers will never get their way, um, so there is there is no I had I was I had no decision making um, voice in this cover thing at all, nor nor the cover lines or any of that stuff. So it's just so that's clear because it, it's something that um, that comes up pretty much constantly with regard to this story, and just everyone just needs to understand that writers write the stories. I mean, my I wrote a story and expected my story 
to just be in the magazine like it always is. And I was hoping people would read it. And I expected I'd have to do, as we always do, kind of a, a Twitter, you know, kind of a Twitter and a Facebook and a, you know, kind of an email campaign to everyone we know saying, hey, you know, read my piece. So what a lot of us do. And um, I did not expect for it to become national news. Mm -hmm. So um, that said, um, I loved the fact that it was on the cover, not just because of my um, personal glory or whatever, but because I thought it, it, it belonged there. I mean, it was huge story. Um, one of the biggest, I think it's probably one of the biggest, the Boston bombing is certainly one of the biggest stories of this past year, 2013. And, um, and we uh, cracked an, an aspect of the story that had not yet been cracked. And, um, and I also think that the photo, which was a self-portrait, it was a selfie mm -hmm. that he, <laughs> Jahar himself had taken. Um, it was a photo of a, of a, of a 19 year old kid. And it was a very, um, it, it was kind of eerie in how normal and a kind of attractive in a very normal way, you know, it was, I mean, it was, it was, it was uh, it, the, the fact that he was attractive and, and, and appealing makes you want to look at him. And I think that the message of the story is to, is to challenge us to look beneath the surface and to look at people and consider that terrorists or accused terrorists are not only going to be, you know, quote unquote, you know, the evil looking um, people like, you know, what, what we've, you know, kind of been led to believe with Osama bin Laden or Mohammed Atta or, or whoever, you know, some of these people that were really made up from the, from the moment um, we knew about them to be these monstrous human beings. In fact, the vast majority of people who do get involved in these kinds of acts are very, you know, normal, otherwise normal people and generally quite well adjusted people if not incredibly successful in their lives and which is interesting. Um, and so uh, it is often the least the last person you would expect to do something like this that does do something like this and you know and that that's that's according to you know a wide variety of terrorism experts and so um, you know that's what I thought was so from my personal perspective I was like no, that's very interesting because he is the least last you know he's the least likely person you would imagine and here he is and he's challenging the reader just to hopefully to um, to kind of um, question their prejudices, you know, ch challenge, challenge their thinking on um, this issue, which I think really does need to be challenged um, because, in my view, we have not solved, nor will we ever necessarily solve terrorism, but we certainly haven't cracked um, the sort of formula, if there even is a formula for this. And I don't actually think there is a formula. I think it's, it's a much more complicated matter that we need to explore. Yeah, it seems to me that before you even began, it would have seemed like a very daunting type story to start reporting. Um, what made you want to try and do? What, what made you want to to take a crack at the story? Oh, I'm a masochist. <laughs> That's a good answer. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, most of us who do this kind of stuff are masochists. Um, yeah, it was really difficult, um, and I've been. I'm going to do starting another story now that's also similarly very difficult like that. It, it's, I, I, I guess the best answer is that I felt that I felt that Jahar Zarnayev, not necessarily Tamerlan, um, but Jahar was the 
the you know, kind of quintessential Rolling Stone character. And I, I knew that the mainstream newspapers, the major papers and, and, um, and networks and et cetera, were not going to be looking at him as closely as they would Tamerlan because Tamerlan was so clearly, um, you know, as far as we know, he was clearly the mastermind. Mm-hmm. He also had a very clear trajectory. Um, he had, he kind of fit the profile and it was an, a much easier and more in some ways interesting um, trajectory to follow because he was the person who, who obviously came up with this idea and, and, and was the, the sort of the ringleader. Um, and that said, you know, the, the younger brother um, I thought was also really interesting for sort of other reasons. And, um, and Rolling Stone is in a unique position with that age group not necessarily just because it's you know our reader because our reader actually goes from teenagers all the way up to people in their 60s we have subscribers from back in the day um and there're still subscribers and readers and and so it's not really just like a you know just a youth magazine but we have um always really um and I have always really sort of specialized in in, in writing about youth and so I felt that you know this was a, a kind of a rare opportunity to take a, a young character who um, and really, really delve into him, and who was you know, accused of doing this hor- horrifying thing, and he was national news. I mean, it was kind of um, there wasn't a sort of a food group in there that he didn't meet in terms of what would make a great story and a, and a great character, and um, and, a, and a huge challenge. And and I thought that my focusing on him would be somewhat counterintuitive and it would probably um, disarm a number of people, and it, and it did. A lot of people were um, much more willing and eager to talk about him because, you know, he was, he was, like it or not, he was sort of beloved. He was much loved by the people that knew him. So um, there were lots of people that were very reticent, but then there were others that were very eager to, to kind of try to humanize him, which is what we tried to do. Yeah, I think that really comes through in the story, especially with some of the people you talked with, because in some ways, even after he did what he did, they still loved him and they still were like, oh, you know, looking for um, any signs of remorse or anything from him anytime they could, uh, particularly the ending uh, of the story. Uh, Did that surprise you as you went into this? No, no. Well, first of all, look, I I am, I, I, um, I believe very deeply that people are innocent until proven guilty. So I think all the facts in this case suggest that this guy is guilty. The facts as I know them suggest that he is guilty. Mm. But um, if I were to, um, you know, kind of indict him in my own mind Mm -hmm. before or or in the very beginning of my investigation into him, I'm not going to ask the questions that are going to bring him to life and make him a full person. Because what we do when we decide someone is a monster is we turn them into a monster and we, we, we have them fit, you know, we, we, we sort of construct them in a way that they fit that monster box. They fit into that monster um, stereotype. And what I wanted to do with Jahar, despite the fact that we had the term monster on the cover, um, was to demonster him. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's not really the most articulate way to say it, but to sort of um, um, strip him of that 
of all that sort of evil, negative um, stuff that had been piled on him and look at him as the, the person that he seemingly was until just very quick, soon before this, this incident happened. I mean, m by all sort of indications, um, even his embrace of a more extreme um, ideology didn't happen until a couple of months prior to the, um, to the attack. Um, you know, for most of his life, he was kind of a, a bit of a slacker. I mean, he was um, he was not a, the most diligent Muslim. He kind of took it seriously, but but you know, he really hated to to quit pot smoking pot for Ramadan. That was like a big thing for him. Mm. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> he could go a whole month without weed. You know, he's that's who he was. So it wasn't. Um, and I was really interested in that person. I was like, who is that guy? And what was you know what 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 were all these little components that led to to this happening? And what were the stresses, the external stresses on this guy and on his life? You know, because I think the other thing with Jahar that's very important to point out is that, you know, he, he in many ways is the, the, the right now, you know, the classic American teenager, not the classic non uh American-born American teenager. There's a lot of them. We don't necessarily pay very much attention to them, to immigrant kids in the media, and they have a lot of struggles that um, that middle-class white kids from the suburbs necess don't necessarily have. And I wanted to look at, at some of that and look at how that worked on him because I think that had a very profound effect um, on him psychologically yeah. and was probably part of why he was... Um, weakened in a certain sense and were sort of more open to destructive ideas than maybe he would have been otherwise. Yeah, and I think that comes through in the story. It's it's really well reported as well. Uh, can you talk about the reporting? Um, like, how did you start? And then uh, how did you get to the end? I started by, I came to Boston the day after he was arrested and um. To be very honest with you, I spent the first three days, you know, kind of having a, a bit of a breakdown in my hotel room because it was so, I just really was like, I don't have a clue as, you know, how I'm going to do this. Nobody wants to talk. This is not like going to a small town. This is, a, you know, this is a city. Um, the, the major media have already been through and have intimidated basically everyone. Um and had, have left very bad tastes in a lot of people's mouths. So it wasn't something that um, uh, I, I wasn't going to be able to call, say, a teacher or a student or some or a college friend and say, or you know, walk up to them and be like, "Would you mind talking to me?" and have them be like, "Yeah, sure," because no, their their reaction would be to like hide in the bushes. Um, and you know, which which apparently was happening actually at at the college when mm -hmm. the kids were, <laughs> were hiding from the media in the bushes because they had been so aggressive with them. Um, but uh, ultimately, I did a lot of, you know, online um, emailing. I reached out to lots of people through Twitter, through Facebook, um, through other sort of social networks. I, to be very frank, I have a, a cousin who's fantastic who just graduated from BU and was a journalism major and was also in a fraternity. And he was in the same fraternity as a kid who knew Jahar from college. 
they're different colleges, but it's the same fraternity. And he reached out through his fraternity network and helped. He wanted to help me. On he was like my intern on the story because he he wanted to learn. I wanted to help him learn journalism, and he wanted to learn. So, um, so he did some work for me, and and that he was really helpful in helping me, like just make a couple of connections to um, to kids who I might not have been able to connect with otherwise because I didn't have those networks. Um, so that's a little secret. Right. But uh, <laughs> but that was one person. You know, he, he got he got um, he he helped out with a couple of things. But I mean, for the most part, it was. It was just, um, you know, sort of the, the 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 21st century version of working the phones, which is you work Facebook and Twitter, mm-hmm. and um, and I and also worked some of the of the adults. Like, you know, I I knew there were there were a couple of stories that came out very quickly um, in the newspaper. That mentioned um, a, a coach who had been close to Jahar, this guy named Peter Payak, and a, a teacher, or for a retired teacher from the high school named Larry Aronson, um, who happened to live across the street. And they had been quite vocal, and they're both very well connected in Cambridge. And so I, I spent a lot of time with them, and, and they were um, they were very good on a million levels in terms of connecting me to others, but also just explaining things about the community and, and about the general milieu. Um, and, and it's just sort of one of those things where one thing leads to another. There was a, a, a one young man who I, I had heard about and who did agree to meet with me off the record. And he had been a very good friend of Jars. And he, um, he told me about this other group who were the really close, close friends of Jars that nobody knew about because none of those people had wanted to talk to the media. And he suggested that I just keep coming back and at some point they would be willing to talk. So I, I made a number of trips to Boston, and, and one of them was, I think it was the second or third time I went, um, one of Jahar's friends, a guy named Robel Philippos, was arrested um, and, uh, and charged with basically lying to federal officers. He, he had known um, that Jahar's backpack, he was a friend from high school and from college, and he had known that the backpack which had some of you know the empty fireworks containers and stuff had been thrown away by another friend, and he'd been sort of involved t- very tangentially in some of that, just in terms of being around um, in the aftermath with these friends. And he, uh, so he was arrested and he was arraigned. And I went to that initial hearing, and so did a number of these very close friends, and so that I met them there and just basically said, you know, hi, here's you know here's who I am, here's what I'm wanting to do. Um, there was this one girl in particular who, um, who seemed very sweet and I just gave her my card and I said, you know, why don't you just do a Google and look at, look, that's what I generally tell people. Mm-hmm. I'm like, don't, when you just like read what I've written, I'm not going to give you, a, you know, kind of a, a whole, you know, bullshit line. I'm just going to, you know, this is what I am. This is who I am. This is what I do. This is our magazine. You understand the magazine. Read what I've written make a decision, here's my contact info. And she did, and she got in touch with me about a week and a half later and said that, you know, wow, you know, I love your work, and and wouldn't it be great if we could all get together, a whole group of our friends, and sit around and talk with you? <laughs> <laughs> Which is like, you know, a reporter's, that's, that's your dream. With, with teenagers, that is your absolute dream right. because it's very hard to, to interview um, 
especially teenage boys, it's very hard to, to interview young men one-to-one -one, um, on these kinds of, it just, it, it, they're uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. so it's, a, it's not every, I mean, the first kid that I met that, that, you know, my first, you know, entry into this group this, by this first kid, he was, an, he's a young man, he's very, very poised and was terrific. But not every 19-year-old guy is like that. And oftentimes, they are much better in groups. They can, kids kind of feed off of one another mm -hmm. when they talk. You get their, you just, you just get them going. And it's, it's hard to explain without sounding weird. I mean, the kid, kids are fairly narcissistic. They're very self-focused. And um, so, I mean, I was that way as a teenager. You know, most teenagers are that way. So it's, it's, it's hard to get them off of themselves. And if you get them in a group, they wind up sort of talking off of one another and playing off of one another. And you learn a lot that way. And so that was this wonderful opportunity and it's also just a much more relaxed way to do an interview, and it, it was like just I just hung out with them for an afternoon, and that that was um, hugely helpful. And then you know, obviously, then you, I followed up with them quite a bit off, after that online, and and it was just that that's kind of the process. But um, you know, I, it was it wasn't there was no mystery in this. It was kind of the way I go about every story that I I do is I just sort of make make a friend or make a connection, and then I that person you know will trust me and introduce me a couple of others, and the circle grows. When uh, the circle was very large on this story, there are a lot of sources in the story. Um, how yeah. do you take all of that information from all of those people and organize it, and then turn it into a coherent narrative? It's really, really, really hard. <laughs> That's all I can say. Um, and Do you have I, a system in place, or it's well? I got to say, the one one of the things with doing a magazine story, um, one of, I mean, what what we do at Rolling Stone, um, or what I do a, a lot at Rolling Stone, is sometimes I, I we take a story that's already been out there, but we give it our spin interpretation, our depth, our, we kind of try to tell the ultimate, you know, we're, we're going to do it best. And the New Yorker does this too, by the way, you know, like the New Yorker did a brilliant Steubenville story. Ariel Levy wrote this fabulous, fabulous story on um, the Steubenville rape, which is, you know, a major, major national news story it was everywhere. The Times did a gigantic, you know, I don't know, two page, three page spread on this case. And she went in and investigated this very fully and told this fabulous you know, 12,000 or something word P, you know, story on it. And, and that's kind of the same approach that, that I take. So the, the, the architecture of a story is in many ways already there. You know what happened. You know sort of the greatest hits of this guy's life. You know some of the greatest hits of the people in his life, in fact. Um, and, and so what, what you have to do is think about, okay, well, what does it mean? You know, what does this mean? And... Um, and, and where are the, where are the sort of the major holes and, um, and what are the things that you find most interesting? And, and that's kind of how, you know, I go about it is looking at things like that. I mean, one thing that we were particularly, um, in my first draft, I, I was very pressed for time and I wrote a first draft or half of a first draft, um, in about two weeks after I finished some of the more major reporting 
um, against a deadline that it was not it was not realistic, and I wound up getting an, an extra three weeks, and that's why it came out um, the way it did. But um, initially, I was you know struggling with well, how do I even begin the story? Did I, I wanted to begin it with with the idea of Jahar being in the boat, and you know initially I was like, well, here he is in the boat, and here's what happened. Here's the whole backstory, you know, in twelve ten paragraphs, and you know my editor basically put a big red line through that, like we already know that. What was really interesting to him was as soon as we got to anything pertaining to who this guy was, his, his, who his, what his backstory was, who the, the friends, you know, the things that brought him to life as a person. And so, um, I, you know, I had to kind of do a lot of shorthand with um, some of the actual um, sort of timeline events or you know, chronological events or the, the big the big news events that happened in terms of sort of the, you know, the manhunt for him and um, what had happened in Boston and what, you know, how his brother was killed and all those kinds of things got dramatically condensed and, um, and, and, and you know, other things were expanded just to turn it into sort of more of a, of a story. And, and, you know, I began it um, with the the coach having received this telephone call from an FBI um, uh, conflict, you know, the, the guy that, that that resolves these these kinds of um, situations and a negotiator, and um, and that was I learned about that just a few days before, and it was just this amazing detail, and I I completely ripped up the beginning of my story and rewrote it to make it read like that and I thought that worked very well because it kind of brought you into the story through a different perspective other than um, Jahar himself. Yeah, it was a, it's a great story and um, have, have you gotten uh, uh, beyond the, the cover, the cover um, controversy, have you gotten much feedback on it? What yeah, I just said? want to make the point actually. Um, the cover controversy was the cover controversy but I mean and the cover controversy served to encourage a tremendous number of people to read this. The story was read, the number of hits the story received broke our hit counter. We couldn't go higher. We couldn't count any higher. We don't even know how many people read it based on the hits, you know, on a, on a story. Right. Um, we received 4,300 or more pieces of email on this story. Some of it was, yes, was... Um, was you know angry at, at the cover most of it though I think a lot of it was quite positive towards the story mm -hmm. um, the New York Times devoted two stories to the story <laughs> like David Carr wrote about the story and it was on the op-ed the, the editorial board of the New York Times did an editorial about the story you know Frank Rich wrote an, a, a wonderful piece about the story the story was actually the story as a piece of writing was reviewed by a number of people, The Atlantic, um, there's a, a list of others. I mean, it's, it's so it's, it's really, the cover is the cover. We put the guy in the cover. I'm sorry that it, it had the, the visceral impact that it did on so many people. It was not an intended thing. We did not by any means go out of our way to insult or hurt anyone. I mean, I, as I said, I had nothing to do with it, but I know my editors, you know, there was an... That was not the intent, mm -hmm. but as a piece of journalism, the story was incredibly well received and um, and and well reviewed actually, which is an unusual thing for magazine journalism um, to to get i mean it, a lot of people went out of their way to read it um, 
and and a lot of a lot of people in my business went out of their way to read it and write about it. So that was nice. Um, and in addition, you know, the magazine itself sold even though it was boycotted um, by CVS and Walgreens and a couple of other places. Um, and that was big news that all these, you know, chain stores or big box stores were boycotting the magazine. They were, it sold triple the newsstand um, than it usually does. So I think it was a great success all the way around. And um, I, I really couldn't have been happier, just mostly because people read my story, and that's what I care about. Yeah. And it started a conversation. I wish that conversation went beyond whether or not we should put this kid's face on the cover of the magazine. Mm -hmm. But there's a much bigger conversation to be had on on how we approach terrorism and and what who we who we consider to be terrorists. Yeah, it's a phenomenal story, and we've linked to it on our website. It's at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Uh, so if you haven't read it yet, by all means, uh, go read it now. Um, let's talk about another uh, story that you wrote in the November 2012 issue of um, of Rolling Stone. Uh, I read it last night. Uh, it, it, it's titled Enemy of the State, and it's about a hacktivist uh, with Anonymous named Jeremy Hammond. And it's a really fascinating read. Um, can you talk briefly about the story, what the story's about? Yeah, so Jeremy Hammond is a uh, an anarchist slash hacktivist. He's a brilliant hacker. Um he is also a, um, or I would say, a very, very talented hacker, and he's also a very committed political activist and he's an anarchist. And he's been very involved in both since he was a teenager. And he um, he is currently about to be sentenced to probably somewhere around ten years or maybe more than that um, for hacking uh, Stratfor, which is a um, private security. And private intelligence contractor for the U.S. government and other private companies based in Texas. And it was a part of a, um, a, a larger operation that he did with Anonymous that was actually set up by the FBI. It was, he was working on the direction of a, a guy who he believed to be a friend and a close, like a comrade, who turned out to be an informant. And, um, and he did a, a number of... of criminal hacks, um, all of which had a kind of political angle to them, um, directly, you know, with the, you know, with the FBI watching and, and I think supervising, <laughs> um, this. so, um, and he's the only, there was a number, there were a number of hackers who were arrested, um, for a series of different hacks, but really he's the, the only really serious political and probably the most talented of all those hackers. And um, and he's facing major time. He was looking at um, probably spending the rest of his life in prison. He just recently cut a deal, pled guilty, and he's going to be sentenced in, uh, I believe it's in November. So the story was about how he, again, you know, so how, how his whole trajectory, you know, where he began and how he wound up where he was. And it tells a story also of the informant. How did you hear about the story? It was, it was actually, again, it was interesting. He, so the story was... Um, the, the informant was a guy named um, Hector Monsiger, who went by the nom de guerre Sabu. And that, the arrest of um, Hammond and a couple of other people in, in the UK and Ireland were all arrested 
in this kind of raid on Anonymous and in the um, in in March and um, in the charging documents in the FBI's affidavits, they revealed the name of this informant and who was also taken into some kind of protective custody. And so when that became known that this this famous the, the informant himself, Sebu, was kind of a famous hacker. And, and a kind of agent provocateur. I mean, he was, he was, you know, trying to really kind of whipping a certain faction of anonymous up into a frenzy and encouraging them to, you know, hack anyone and everyone, especially government or corporate targets. And so this became kind of news. It was covered in, in some of the newspapers in New York had little items on it and Gawker did a big story on it. And it was just sort of out there. And when you thought about doing a story on him, and again, I felt like, no, you know, he's not the right target. And in fact, you know, New York Magazine did a story on him that was not as, it was, it was fine. <laughs> but, but that was, I figured that, that, a mag, that sort of a New York Magazine would, would immediately seize on him. And, and what I found looking at who else was arrested was, well, here's this really serious political activist who's been in trouble for this kind of thing before. I mean, Hammond had gone to prison, federal prison, when he was younger and in his early 20s, now in his late 20s, when he was about, I think he was 22 or something, he went to prison for a very similar hack, very similar tactics, and, and in some ways very similar reasons. And so he, and he'd actually been written about in Chicago Magazine back then. And, um, and I thought, I read about him, I thought he was really interesting, and he's clearly brilliant, and he was kind of the real deal. And I thought, you know, he's, he's a great character. You know, here he is. This is, he's, Anonymous is one of these groups. It's not really a group. It's a kind of, it, it's hard to define what it is. It's a, it's, a, it's a loose collective of sorts, and it does have a very strong, it's become very, um, very much of an activist collective. And, um... It has become that way thanks to what I what I believe are probably a relatively small number of people who have pushed it in a more political direction. He's one of them, um, and he had a very very strong voice. And so I thought he was much more interesting because he really had an impact and um, and and uh, was kind of regarded within both the hacker world and the activist world as. as a kind of a very serious guy who had had he been allowed to kind of continue on um, would have become better at what he was doing I think so you know, however you want to judge that <laughs> he, he was he was not um, he had deep beliefs they were not changing you know he has very deep deep political beliefs I don't believe they're going to change Right. Uh, I'm, I'm really interested in, in anyone who who has deep beliefs on anything. Mm -hmm. What? Um, how did you manage to get an interview with him in the jail, uh, considering he hadn't been allowed to have very many visitors at all? Well, that was a. Uh, I basically asked. I That's asked. a good place to start, right? I asked, I asked his lawyers. I said, "I want to visit him," and they said, "Well, you can try." And I wrote a letter to. I said, "Okay, well, I wrote a letter to the jail, and I." Um, I knew that I had written to his attorneys and, and kind of barraged them with letters um, and you know, emails for a couple of months, about two months probably, saying how much I wanted to write about Jeremy. And they had already spoken to Jeremy about this, and Jeremy was on board with it and thought he, it would be great to have a piece about him in Rolling Stone. So 
Um, so he was already sort of amenable to this. And uh, then I, um, I, I called the, the, um, the Manhattan Correctional Center, which is here in Lower Manhattan, which is the sort of federal holding facility for before people are it's like the Rikers Island of in New York it's like the Rikers Island for federal prison <laughs> it's where you go before you're sentenced when you're awaiting trial in a federal court in New York and um and they just sort of ran it up to the warden and it was fine with them and and I we agreed to all the terms like you can't tape and you can't photograph and all that stuff you have to take notes on paper um and uh, and they gave me, called me up and said, you can come on a certain date. And I went, it was, it was, uh, there was, there's a lot more to that, I think, but I, I can't really get into it, but it, it's, it was, it was fairly straightforward. It was like, I asked, I found out who to write to. I wrote to them. They said, yes, I sat down with them for an hour. It was a great, it was great. It was, it was, had I not had that opportunity, I think that we wouldn't have had as good of a story for sure. It's a great story. It's a nice, uh, a good page turner. Uh, like I said, I, I love stories that kind of, um, these true crime stories. And, and this one mixes in the technology and, and Anonymous, which is a, a fascinating organization in and of itself. Yeah. Uh, or not organization, but. It's okay. Something. I don't, it's hard <laughs> to know what they are. And I'm not, a, I, I don't come from the internet. As, as a friend of mine who, who is another journalist who covers technology, who, which she says she comes from the internet. <laughs> I do not come from the internet. I do not speak internet. Like I, I don't, it was very difficult in many ways. It was because I was really exploring the subculture of people that I just, I, I never even met most of them in person. I didn't talk to most of them on the phone. It was all electronic communication for the most part. It was very interesting and just learning about what their politics are and, um, and what their history is and, and all the connections and, and their ethos and their kind of entire um, worldview was kind of fascinating. And they're not, I mean, the thing about them is they're leaderless and, um, and, and, and they're even, even more vague in their ideology than, say, the ELF, you know, the Animal Liberation, the, excuse me, the um, Environmental what was the Earth Liberation Front and the Animal Liberation Front, ELF and ALF, they were um, considered, you know, eco-terrorists back in the 90s, and they, they were also leaderless. They were cell-based, but they had a kind of very straight um, goal. And Anonymous, I think, has a shifting goals. And so it's very hard to kind of pinpoint what they are and what they're about and what he, he represented a certain, certain corner of Anonymous that was doing the more more you know, visible and, um, and political stuff and okay. breaking the law. <laughs> Not all of anonymous breaks the law. Right. Well, Janet, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. It's been so much fun talking with you uh, about your stories. Uh, I really recommend everyone go, just go to your byliner page and, and read all the stories. And I think nobody, they won't be disappointed. So thanks again for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. We've been talking with Janet Reitman, a contributing editor at Rolling Stone and the author of Inside Scientology, the story of America's most secretive religion. We've linked to a number of her stories on our website. You can find that at www.gangraythepodcast.com. Join us next week when we talk with Wright Thompson. Thompson is a senior writer with ESPN.com and ESPN the Magazine. We've linked to many of his stories on our website. 
You can download Gangry the Podcast on iTunes or find links to all our episodes at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Gangry the Podcast is now available on Stitcher Radio On Demand. Stitcher is an award-winning free mobile app that lets you listen to all your favorite shows on demand. Don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at stitcher.com or in the app stores. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter, at Gangry Podcast. That's at G-A-N-G-R-E-Y-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. We also have a website. It's www.gangrythepodcast.com. Gangry the Podcast is produced in the studios of WRDL 88.9 at Ashland University and is a production of the Journalism and Digital Media Department. Our intro music comes from Noah Heyman. This episode was produced, edited, and hosted by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us.